0: In Black and White is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. Our subscribers get access to the full Herald Sun website, including companion articles and photographs to this podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, click on heraldsun.com.au forward slash IBAW to go to the new In Black and White page and click on any article to begin.
1: giving them shocks, running electric currents through their bodies. I'd assume that he was probably using something similar with the Essendon team as well. He'd set up in generally the most expensive hotel in town so that it would look like he had plenty of money and he was very reputable and people would turn up because, you know, every town's got people that want something cured. He'd been, to use their own words, attempting to stupefy his nurse. Mostly, I think he was a psychopath.
0: I'm Jen Kelly, and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. One of the Essendon Football Club's first trainers was a quack doctor, con artist, serial criminal and suspected murderer called Carl von Lederberg. During a long and colourful career, von Lederberg at one stage claimed to be a doctor and set up shop as what he called a medical electrotheraputist. In one bizarre treatment, he injected the pulverised testicles of dogs, sheep, guinea pigs and goats into his patients with the aim of raising testosterone and other hormone levels. To tell the story, we welcome back Melbourne writer and historian Michael Shelford, the creator and guide for Melbourne Historical Crime Tours. So Carl von Lederberg was one of Essendon's first trainers, and apart from being a serial criminal, he was many more things besides. Can you tell us about his arrival in Australia by ship in 1883, carrying a sword on his hip?
1: Yeah, he arrived supposedly from Calcutta, where he'd done some medical training, supposedly, he arrived in, in Melbourne, he set himself up in Essendon, obviously made himself a regular of a particular Essendon hotel, where the daughter of the publican, somebody called Lizzie Elburn, or I think uh, Little Lizzie Elburn she was known as, used to entertain the guests with her piano playing. So she was a, um, apparently a very attractive young woman, um, well-educated, well-spoken, and she caught the eye of Carl von Lederberg. How did
0: her family feel about that?
1: Well, she fell in love with him. They announced they were going to get married and the family were not impressed at all.
0: So he was a bit of a dodgy character already by this stage, wasn't he?
1: Very much a dodgy character. Um, he was a pretty good salesman of himself generally, but you, you find people who can see through that. And obviously her parents could, but she couldn't. She ended up marrying him against her parents' wishes.
0: What was he doing for work at that stage?
1: Uh, he, he was a painter. So just like a, not, not as in an artist, a general house painter. It was believed that he'd been a sailor at some point as well. But I don't think he was satisfied just with being a painter.
0: And he was a bit of a con artist as well, wasn't he?
1: He was a con artist. The, the day that they got married, she was waiting at the altar and he didn't turn up. And so they went to his place where he was staying and, and went inside and he was asleep. And he said that he just tried to rest his eyes so that he could be nice and relaxed for the wedding and, and had fallen asleep. So they had to rush him off to the church to get married and then the um, priest that was marrying them started asking about his pay, saying that it's due, you were supposed to pay me before now. And he made some, all sorts of excuses as to why um, he wasn't able to give him the money straight away, but promising that he would end up getting it. The priest didn't end up getting his money. So if that was any example of how things were going to go in their marriage after that.
0: And was he involved in medical quackery yet at this stage?
1: He, he claimed to have had medical training. It wasn't long after that that he started doing some training for the Essendon football team, but I don't know whether he just made it all up on the on the run.
0: So he first made his name in athletics in the sport of pedestrianism. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so um, pedestrianism was one of the most popular sports or endeavours in the era and it was all about marathon-style walking, race walking. It was all about endurance. So sometimes the famous pedestrians of the day or what we would call marathon walkers today used to walk for weeks at a time. How many hundred miles can you walk in six days? That kind of thing. And they're always trying to break each other's endeavours. Often the races would be around a stadium or something like that. So you might just do lap after lap after lap after lap. um, Three hours rest a day back into it sort of thing and that was what he was involved in and he actually when he arrived here in Australia in Melbourne he was using the name Charles Rowell and that was the name of the most famous pedestrian in the world at the time somebody in Britain the world champion so I don't know whether when he started using that name he thought he might be able to pull the wool over some people's eyes that he was actually that person or not that um, he announced that he was going to break all sorts of records here in Australia and it just never seemed to happen. He'd um, accidentally bump his knee on the third lap into the race and, and that sort of thing.
0: And when did he first come to the attention of police?
1: He came to the attention of police when a jeweller from Fitzroy pawned some stolen items and the police traced those items back to the jeweller from the pawn shop and they asked the jeweller, where did you get these items? And the jeweller said, I got them from a walking man, Charles Rowell and they raided Charles Rower's house, where he was actually staying at the time in um, Fitzroy and found him hiding under the bed. They found drawers and drawers full of stolen jewellery, etc. And it turned out that he was actually breaking into people's houses, while they're as- their rooms, while they are asleep at night time. So that's how audacious he was. There were people thinking that they felt a presence in the room and waking up to see the door still swinging open and he was on his way. Even early in his marriage to Lizzie Elburn, they moved into into Fitzroy and we're, we're talking the 1880s. Fitzroy is one of the trendiest places in Melbourne to live. The young, upwardly mobile, they were attending all the society dances and parties, etc. And they are actually at a party one evening and one of their new acquaintances suddenly said, oh dear, I'm going to have to go home. I think I've left my house unlocked. Um, I'm not sure what I'll do. I've got to go back. And and he just refused to let her do it. He said, no, no, I'll do it for you. And so he went back. And it it took much longer than they anticipated for him to go back and make sure that the door was locked and to um, secure it if if it wasn't. But he came back and said it's all fine. The place is all locked up. Uh, When she returned home after the party, she found that the whole place had been ransacked. So um, if that's an example as well of how things were headed with him.
0: Once he got out of Pentridge... And football was starting to become a really popular sport. I'm intrigued with how a bloke who just served nearly three years in jail was able to score a job as a trainer with the Essendon Football Club.
1: I'm guessing that he wouldn't have informed them of his criminal record. He was a good salesperson, so he he would have actually made up all types of things about what he'd done in the past, which made him qualified. How he's going to be able to improve the condition. Um, the athleticism of the players in the Essendon team. Whatever he did, he managed to get the job. And he was the, the trainer for Essendon from 1892, 1891, 1892, 1893, back in the the days before they had coaches. And teams had only recently begun to, to have trainers. It had actually elevated the athleticism of the clubs. So the clubs were all getting trainers to compete with each other. So you could almost say that in some ways he had some of the roles that a coach would have today, I think.
0: And was he pretty successful as a trainer?
1: Well, under his tutelage, while he was training Essendon, they won their first ever premierships. So they won the 1891 and the 1892 VFA awards and the 1893 as well. And then even the 1894, which was the year after he'd actually left the team.
0: So in those three years that he was working as a trainer for the Essendon Football Club, was he also continuing as a crook?
1: Well, he had his success in 1891 of being the trainer that assisted Essendon to their first ever title. But three weeks after the final game, there was an Essendon shopkeeper who disturbed an intruder and was repeatedly stabbed about the neck and body during a struggle. Got a good sight on um, the intruder, as did the shopkeeper's wife, and they both identified photos of Lederbergh as being the intruder and then to make sure the person who'd seen him the best because the shopkeeper, of course, was trying to defend his own life. The person who'd seen him best was the wife and she was actually taken in to identify him in, in person and said he's exactly the same except his moustache seems a bit lighter. Now, somebody that knew letterbur actually came forward and testified that Lederberg was in the habit of darkening his moustache with charcoal but that was not enough. The the jury thought that the fact that the moustache seemed to be a different colour meant that it was too risky to actually have somebody sent to prison just on that identification alone, and he was actually let off.
0: And do we know anything about what sort of techniques he was using as a trainer?
1: I don't know, but when he left the Essendon team, it coincided with when Essendon did a tour of Tasmania, and he obviously saw some um, business opportunities in Tasmania and he stayed and he set himself up as an electrotherapeutical medical practitioner. So that was actually treating people's various ailments through electricity. Galvanic batteries, giving them shocks, running electric currents through their bodies. I'd assume that he was probably using something similar with the Essendon team as well. Not too long after that, he started to advertise a very different technique, and it was called the Brown-Saquad technique brown Sequard technique was uh, introduced into Australia by Dr L. L. Smith and there's a bust of Dr L. L. Smith at the Exhibition Building still today, a very famous medical practitioner of the era and politician, etc. Dr L. L. Smith claimed to have actually learnt the brown Sequard technique by Dr Sequard himself in Europe with one hour sitting. The technique was actually, I think in some ways, quite similar to the use of steroids in a way. What they used to do is that they used to actually get the the testicles of animals, dead animals, I'd assume, mash them up with a mortar and pestle, drain the fluid out of what had been left over by the mashing, and put that into a hypodermic syringe and inject that into the veins of the patient, hoping to raise testosterone levels. When Dr. Brown Squard first tried the technique on himself, and I think he was in his 70s at the time and he was ailing, he said that suddenly he was like a 50 year old and he was bounding up and down the stairs. I don't think that lasted for so long, but people around the world got very excited. Carl von Lederberg then um, started advertising that he'd learnt the technique from Dr L.L. Smith, so it was available in Tasmania. And so he, he was actually giving that treatment to his patients in Tasmania, he was injecting them with elevated testosterone levels, supposedly, and he was actually making the formulas himself as well in his own surgery.
0: And was this technique just for the general public, or was this for high-performance athletes?
1: It was for the general public, but uh, there was an article in the newspaper around the era where the English team hadn't done particularly well, and the article said that uh, members of the public were calling for the English team to suddenly be getting treated with this technique.
0: And is there any suggestion that he used the technique on himself or on his wife?
1: Uh, he, He used all of his techniques on himself and his wife. I couldn't really say about some of the later things that he started to use, like x-ray machines, radiography and and that sort of stuff, but he definitely experimented on himself and his wife.
0: Because his wife had a few health issues, didn't she?
1: His wife ended up being completely deaf and almost completely blind, but she, she said that even though he had been using his treatments on her, it had nothing to do with her ailments.
0: And going back to his time as trainer at Essendon, we've got no idea whether he might have been doing this while he was there on the footballers.
1: Yeah, there's no no suggestion that he was. It was only the the next year that he was advertising the technique in Tasmania and Launceston, though.
0: And do we think it worked? Is there any suggestion that his technique was actually successful and effective?
1: Uh, really couldn't say. You know, people imagine that things work for them and they don't, you know, it's not necessarily the treatment that's doing it, it's the power of positive thought. Um, There were definitely some people that thought it did.
0: Now, he was a pretty athletic chap and he ended up becoming successful as a cyclist as well.
1: As successful as he became in any other sporting profession um, when relying on his own body to do so, um, he announced that he was going to break cycling records, both in Tasmania and later when he moved to New Zealand. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. But something would always go wrong again, just like when he was a pedestrian and he'd bump his knee or something like that. But he was being followed very closely by the New Zealand press because he'd announced that he was going to break a particular distance record. The first attempt, he got a broken pedal. Another attempt, he got lost, etc., etc.
0: Can we talk a little bit more about his wife? Because she was quite the character as well, wasn't she? And she became known as Madam Olga.
1: Yeah, so they they were in Tasmania together. Visitors from the mainland, their friends from Melbourne, they visited them. their medical practice was doing exceptionally well. They were making money hand over fist, but they were obviously spending more than they were making because they had to abandon Tasmania to get away from debt. That's when they moved to New Zealand. When they moved to New Zealand, they were doing the same type of medical procedures, etc. Uh, it was all, the police in New Zealand believed that they were becoming involved in the abortion industry as well, which was a highly illegal uh, practice in that era. Lizzie was not too impressed with her husband, Carl von Lederberg, when she discovered that their live-in piano teacher uh, was having a fling with him. And so, so she left him and returned to Melbourne. Not long after that, Carl Lederberg decided that he was going to go to the Klondike Goldfields in Canada, and find his fortune, um, leaving behind a lot of debt when he went. He returned to New Zealand, telling big stories of how he'd been almost starving to death in the wilderness and he'd happened upon a gold mountain and he'd made his fortune. Everyone was very impressed except for his debtors. He managed to borrow more money um, under the pretense of suddenly being wealthy and waiting for that wealth to arrive. When he left to go to Klondike, One of the newspapers said, we understand that Carl von Lederberg has gone to um, Klondike, Canada, to settle down. We wish that he just stayed here and settled up.
0: (laughs) So did he ever mend his criminal ways?
1: Well, no, he didn't. At this part of the story, his wife is trying to raise their child on her own back in Melbourne without any financial assistance. She's almost completely blind. She's completely deaf so she's starting to use similar techniques that she'd learnt in her husband's medical practice medical in inverted commas uh, to to try and make a living here so she was actually giving the um, the battery technique therapies by electricity and that kind of thing she was always on the on the move because she could never pay the rent so she'd get to a point where she was about to get kicked out she'd abandon the place and take up a lease somewhere else so always on the move eventually by 1898, she's running a business in South Yarra, which is a mix of everything that she's possibly ever ever done. So she's giving the massage therapy with the electricity. She's reading palms. She's doing palmistry, telling fortunes. She's doing nude sittings with another woman that was living with her, being paid by gentlemen to sit before them nude and also engaging in the brothel industry as well. Now, in that year, of course, she's falling behind in rent again. Her real estate agent, who was a, a good-looking young man, everyone had high hopes for his future. He was a person on the move. Had a, a fling with a girl from that same industry who worked in the in the sex industry. Uh, she became pregnant. As it turns out, she wasn't the person that he imagined spending his rest the rest of his life with. And so, the two of those together decided that the best thing to do would be to terminate the pregnancy. They couldn't work out how to do it. Now, he remembered that there was somebody that was a bit shifty, that worked in, in a way in the medical sphere, that was behind in rent and under a bit of pressure. So it was, it was put to Lizzie Elburn, who by this point of time was calling herself M- Madame Olga Raduliski, to make herself sound all mysterious and like the type of person that you would go to to have your cards read or your palm read. And she decided to, she, she agreed to assist them. And she she tried various things and it ended up being very horrific. She was using um, various herbal remedies and that didn't work. And she ended up resorting to the use of currents from the electric battery. After a fairly long period of treatment, the girl passed away. Then the the other female resident of her house and the boyfriend, the father of her um, child, decided to, to throw the, the body into the Yarra. So they, they crammed the poor girl into a suitcase, weighed it down with rocks and chains, hired out a horse, and, a horse and cart, drove it to the edge of the Yarra, pushed it in, and it sank. But it didn't stay down for very long. So it ended up um, bubbling back up to the surface, and there were a couple of boys who were paddling a boat along the Yarra and um, they came across it. They were looking for, for s- scraps. We're talking it's the um, 1890s, it's the Depression in Melbourne. People are in desperate circumstances. They were looking for f- bits of firewood, anything they could find. And they found a- this trunk and they dragged it ashore and without getting into the really gory detail, the body was discovered. And it was later worked out that the, the person um, responsible for the body was none other than Madame Olga Raduliski or Lizzie Elburn.
0: And she was locked up as a result, no doubt?
1: She was sentenced to death, but that sentence was later commuted to 10 years.
0: And what was happening to Carl von Lederberg at this time?
1: He was starting to feel the impact of the notoriety that had come from the body in the bootcase tragedy, um, the body found in the Yarra, and he actually started to move around quite a bit after that. But he was back in Tasmania in 1905 and he advertised the sale of something called a Massacon, which was an old, kind of like an old hearing aid, a device that assisted you if you had hearing problems. The family of a deaf girl decided to invest in one. It was very expensive and who who knows what they had to do to pay for it. They probably had to cut all sorts of corners and um, he just ran off with the money. And so the Tasmanian police believed that he was going to head for Melbourne. And that's where I come across him. So I'm going through a 1905 police file, and the thing that catches my eye is former Essendon trainer. And I've gone, this is interesting. Never heard of this person before. And then I've seen I'm married to Madame Olga Radulski of um, Bootbox fame. And I've gone, what's Bootbox fame? And that's that's why I actually started to do some research on him to begin with. So they're looking for him in um, in New Zealand, all of us all over Australia because of the ripping off the price of a massacre. They eventually ended up finding him up in Queensland, but from that time onwards. It always seemed to follow him everywhere he went, the notoriety from the the body in the bootcase and also everything else that he'd done in his life catching up with him. And so from then on, he just seemed to move very regularly. So he'd move into a new town. He'd cut all this equipment, stuff to give people, radio waves and x-rays and all sorts of modern questionable equipment and he'd set up in generally the most expensive hotel in town so that it would look like um, he had plenty of money and he was very reputable. He had a brass plate that he'd stick on the front door and he'd advertise in the newspapers and he'd do blanket advertising and people would turn up because, you know, every town's got people that want something cured. And he'd give all sorts of promises and then he'd leave town before they realised that it wasn't working properly and move on to the next...
0: And just stepping back, there's a great description of him in the police records, isn't there?
1: Yeah, so that's from that 1905 occurrence and it says, Charles Rowell, alias Karl Adolf de la Ledeber, A native of Switzerland, born in 1862, arrived per ship Newman Hall in 1883 from Calcutta. Five feet seven and a half inches in height, about 11 stone in weight, medium build, sallow complexion, dark brown hair, a painter and quack doctor, eyebrows meet, very square shoulders, scar on left wrist. Is well known in Essendon, where he formerly acted as trainer of the Essendon football team. He is the husband of Madame Olga Radulski of bootbox notoriety.
0: So, what happened to him in the end?
1: He ended up doing some more time in prison. This time it was because he was based in Geelong. A girl came to see him. Well, her family took her, a girl who was between the age of sixteen and eighteen to see him because she was deaf. He promised to restore her hearing but it was very expensive and the family couldn't afford it. So what he actually said was she can work it off. She can actually be my nurse in my medical studio and she can clean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then I'll treat her and take that as payment for the treatment. It turns out that he was actually taking advantage of her, so he was actually drugging her and sexually exploiting her and she ended up becoming um, pregnant to him. So very nasty stuff. And it shows what sort of character he was, really, Uh, He he was found found guilty and he was sent to prison. When he got out of prison, he ended up back up in Queensland. He advertised in the uh, newspapers for another nurse. Three people came along for the interview and he chose one of them. He offered three pounds a week, which is a lot of money in those days. He bought her a new set of clothes because he said, we're off to Cairns and um, those clothes you're wearing don't suit the temperature or the conditions. So he took her to the clothing shop and actually spent a, a small fortune on a new outfit for her, including handbag and hat, etc. shoes. Hopped on the train together up to Cairns, set up his medical studio there. She did some cleaning, etc. On the way up on the train, he said, I've, I've noticed you've got some problems with your legs. And she said, yes, I have varicose veins. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to fix that up for you. I'll treat that for free. So when they were actually up there, he said, I'll hop, hop up onto the bench here. And he gave her some in injections about the hips and she started to feel a bit woozy and she complained of that and he said, oh, okay, that's, that's perfectly normal here, have a couple of these. And he gave her a couple of tablets and then she started to feel even worse. Then she realized that she'd been drugged and that he had there to take advantage of her. She demanded that he take her back to the rooms where she was staying and he said, ''You can go there by yourself.'' She staggered out of his hospital rooms or medical rooms onto the street and was staggering around in a fairly helpless condition outside of a hotel and she got picked up by the police who thought she was drunk. But she ended up being she ended up explaining to them what had happened. And so he was arrested. They went back to his medical rooms and they tested the hypodermic syringe they found hidden underneath a seat on one of the chairs in the room. And they found that it had verinol in it, which was um, like an old barbiturate. And they tested the um, other vials that were found scattered around that were open and they found them to be full of cocaine. And so he'd, he'd been, to use their own words, attempting to stupefy his nurse. When it appeared in court, she actually suddenly changed her story at the end, just before it looked like he was going to be sent to prison again. I don't know whether he bribed her, threatened her, what happened, but she actually said, oh, actually, um, I was making all that up. I injected myself with those drugs when he wasn't looking. They threatened her. They actually declared her a hostile witness, which meant that she, if she kept telling lies in court that she could be sent to prison, but she stuck with her story, so he got away with it again.
0: And what happened in the end?
1: He ended up uh, on and off applying and applying for Australian citizenship during both world wars. He was interned as an um, um, as an enemy um, because he was from uh, arguably from Germany, if you believe his story, perhaps Switzerland, perhaps somewhere else. He ended up just passing away of old age in an old person's home. So he was somewhere between eighty six and in his nineties, depending on which story you believe of his and which record you believe.
0: And can you sum up what you think of him, what type of character he was?
1: I think he's one of the more horrible characters I've ever come across. But it doesn't make him any less entertaining from a historical point of view. He was a quack doctor. He was a thief, a burglar, definitely a rapist, possibly a murderer. He was, uh, in the to use an actual term that was used by the Queensland police when they were looking for him because he'd been married three times um, without getting divorced. He was a bigamist, confirmed bigamist. And those Queensland police in that same, um, when they were searching for him in that same police gazette issue, um, said that he was a drug fiend. So there's that as well. On the more positive side, I suppose you could call him an athlete of types, a trainer of athletes. I suppose you could call him an adventurer, if you believe the stories. But mostly, I think he was a psychopath.
0: He's a shocker. But thank you very much for sharing such a fascinating tale with us today, Michael.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. Thank
0: you. If you want to read more about Carl von Lederberg, you'll find a link to a story and photos in the show notes to this podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters, written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, and produced by Peter Fuller. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you want to support this podcast and be notified when each episode comes out, make sure you hit the subscribe button. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents.
1: We never had any issues between us.
0: Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.